People like you, organizations like Rave Check, I love you guys. You are clear for takeoff runway 21 left. Winds are calm. Stand by for the free trans on uniform. It's showtime. Hey, everybody. It's another. Should I call it a special edition anymore? Because, well. Let's just it's, number them. It's special. This is a special edition because we have. Um, uh, we're doing part two of Sluggo Sends. And. Uh, <laughs> If you don't know what Sluggo sends mean, you need to go back a couple of episodes and listen to our special edition with Marcus Sarah. But anyway, everybody, I'm Tony Rumfalo. I'm Aaron Rumfalo. Hey, little brother Ryan again. And <laughs> <laughs> we are Ramp Check Global. There, there you go. There we go, ladies and gentlemen. Mr. Knuckle Dragging Taker Pilot himself, Mark <laughs> Sarah. Now. I, you, if you listen to the last podcast, Mark, I pronounced your name wrong the entire time and you did not say a word. So that's because I've been either, called a lot worse. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> like knuckle dragging tanker like pilot. Tanker pilot, yeah. Oh, <laughs> that's, yeah. Mark, some colonel go, hey, bonehead, go grab me this. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, thank you for uh, joining us for part two. Uh, we really appreciate you having you back on the podcast. It's great to be here with you guys again. Uh, the last one was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Oh. So, uh, you know, who knows where we're going to go this time, but we'll see. Well, <laughs> I have a couple of places I know we're going to go because you uh, you left a pretty big uh, uh, teaser uh, at the end of the last podcast. Do you remember that? I do. Oh, good. Well, guess okay. what? I have my notes. I have my notes up in front of me. Outstanding. Sweet. Nice. That's good. I, <laughs> I had a couple other questions just because we didn't get enough time last time um, for well, you. We can cover those first, and then we can go into uh, some of you know these other things too. Okay. okay. So that yeah, good. and and after we hung up with you uh, when we finished the last podcast, I know Ryan let me know how butt hurt he was that we didn't let him ask his questions. So I think we're just going to let Ryan go first. Yeah, I'm down. Sure. Um, so I'll just jump. So right anyway, into Mark, did I'm, I'm yeah. I couldn't reason that. Go ahead. Ryan. I knew that was coming. Um, yeah, no, sucks I, being the little brother. Doesn't <laughs> that's right. Yeah, sometimes, but there are also advantages to that as well. But uh, I won't get into those right now. Oh, okay. Um, I've always liked you best. That's oh, damn. <laughs> See, Mark oh. knows. Mark knows. That hurts. What talking about. That hurts. Um, no, I was... The Smothers Brothers back a long time ago. Oh. Mom always liked you best. <laughs> That's right. I got the most because... See, my mom was just so done with everything by the time I was there that my <laughs> rules were probably the, the lightest. And I got to do whatever I wanted because by that point, she's just like... I don't know if I want to deal with this anymore. Yeah, I, I, that's because you learned from raising your two older brothers. That's right. Yeah, Let that's me right. clarify something really fast here. Sure. I was the oldest. I should uh, say I am the oldest. I was going to say you're still with us. <laughs> yeah, I was going to. I was going to ask you, did that change recently? <laughs> we recorded another podcast the other day, and Ryan um, he really threw me under the bus. But we'll we'll get into that later. But uh, so. I'm the oldest, and my parents had our sister 
uh, a year and a half after I was born. So let me just clarify the fact that I got to do whatever I wanted while our sister got to babysit these two. Because <laughs> my parents wouldn't let him alone with us. <laughs> oh, <wow. sighs> All right, that's a good start. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, yeah. welcome once again to the Ramp Check Podcast. Yeah, it's just not the Ramp Check Podcast if us three don't go at it a little bit. But uh, <laughs> anyway, um, just after uh, talking to you last time, Mark, I, I was kind of reading a little bit, you know, about uh, your career and how long you've been in. And I was just kind of interested, you know, what it was like serving um, during the era of like there was a lot of talk about like nuclear war and nukes and things <laughs> like that. Um, I know now sometimes it's brought up, but. You know, I was too young to really realize the severity of um, the whole nuclear uh, war and stuff happening. I want to know just what your level was of, like, worry and how close you think things actually became to happening uh, or came to happen. Um, just kind of what that was like and your feelings um, about that. Because, you know, a lot of people nowadays won't really understand exactly what that was like. That is a great question. And oh, thank my you. son asked me that question. You know, Dad, were you really part of the Cold War? And, and and he asked it like he was shocked that I would even be around nuclear weapons. And and uh, he was writing a paper on the Cold War. Mm -hmm. And like you... He didn't know anything about it because he wasn't raised in that time period, the Reagan 80s, when the Cold War was at its height. Mm -hmm. And the first time that I went on nuclear alert at Pease Air Force Base in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, I'll never forget getting through the double gate and looking at six FB-111s all loaded with what we called two and a half megatons of thermal nuclear attitude adjustment. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Some of the FB-111s were carrying B-61 bombs. Some of them were carrying short-range attack missiles or SRAMs. Hmm. And seeing those bombers still lying still in their hardened aircraft shelters, their drive throughs was amazing because you thought of the cold war you know of, of the cuban missile crisis and so forth and all of a sudden now you're a part of it mm -hmm. and yeah. there was never any really big fear in my mind until september in 87 and that's the chapter i wrote in the book about klaxon 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 where the submarines had moved, and one particular one had moved across the 15-minute line, meaning mm -hmm. from the time he fired his cruise missiles to the time they were impacting was only 15 minutes. Wow. So yeah. the response time was almost cut in half. Wow. And during that time period, we went into an aircraft repositioning plan where we had the three bomber sorties at the end of the runway with their three supporting tankers at the end of the runway out in the open 
with nuclear weapons on the links and in the weapons base. Jeez. Okay. And because of the old A model engines, the FP 111s had afterburner. I mean, that's, uh, yeah. that's the great equalizer is afterburner, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I'm in my Fred Flintstone, you know, car with my <laughs> water wagon <laughs> engines. Okay. Yeah. And we could only accept two or three knots of tailwind. I mean, it was really small. Hmm. So we would have to reposition the tankers. And because we were on a coast right next to the beach, you had prevailing winds coming off of the beach, off the ocean, and then they would change so that they were going out to the ocean. So we were constantly having to move the airplanes back and forth based on the tailwinds. And the co-pilots always do the takeoff data. And we were doing reams of takeoff data. And we didn't have a computer. We had to do it all manually by going going through the performance data books and figuring out what our emergency war order maximum weight and maximum tailwind was because Mm. of the engines. Now the R model engines, uh, again, uh, blew all that out of the water. We didn't have to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can I ask you you a quick question about that, Mark? So the emergency war orders um, for your maximum takeoff, your maximum tailwind, I'm guessing they were less restrictive than normal operating conditions. That is correct. Okay. Yeah, I'm yeah, just curious. That is correct. Yeah. Because, no, and that's a, that's a really good question because you're trying to find out what's the maximum amount of gas I can take off with, with the least amount of tailwind mm-hmm. for the tankers. Okay. Again, the FB 111s, <clears throat> you know, they were often 5,600, 6,000 feet probably in afterburner. And, mm-hmm. and we would take off together. And the reason I wrote that chapter is because we had a, a really tense time period where Reagan and Gorbachev were going back and forth and back and forth on a lot of this stuff. We had bear bombers flying down the coast. Um, we had that uh, Yankee Notch submarine off the coast, Mm-hmm. And he was north of Bermuda. And Bermuda is kind of where they kind of hung out. But when he came north of Bermuda, we're like going, yikes, this is. And we were tracking that submarine uh, two or three times a day. Who knows how many son of boys the Navy dropped on that thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. You know? That's I mean, probably you could probably walk to Bermuda. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I'm just going to say that's probably why it's called the Bermuda Triangle now, because it's like. Triangle, <laughs> yeah, and, and, everywhere. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and the submarine had moved, and that was a really tense time period. And that was one of the few times where I thought something may actually happen here because mm-hmm. there's a lot of activity, and uh, that was a little frightening. Mm-hmm. That was that was a little frightening because um, we're you know we're thinking. You know, are we really going to do this? And then when we started moving airplanes to the end of the runway, you know, then we're thinking, wow. Yeah. And yeah. those were pretty tense times because, you know, um, Valerie and I met 
the month before my wife. Okay. Oh, wow. And so now I'm thinking to myself, well, nuts. You know, here we are now with this increased tension and so forth. And I couldn't talk about it. You know, you know, it's like people are seeing the airplanes move around and people are like, you know, what's going on? And the base was very quiet about it. Mm -hmm. But there was a very heightened tension at that time period. And a lot of people were going back. Mm, this is kind of like, you know, Cuban Missile Crisis kind of thing. Right. So uh, you paid a lot more attention to your threat briefs. You paid a lot more attention to your weather briefs for takeoff, you know, data. Yeah. And and you watched those submarines and their locations very closely. They had one up uh, beyond Greenland and the one, this Yankee Notch was a cruise missile. And it was, I think it was on its first deployment and, and, it, and it was just tense. And, and, and there's, you can feel that tension in the air and you can, you start wondering when is the klaxon going to go off? Yeah. And I'm a light sleeper anyway. Mm. And fortunately, during the really tense two-week time period, uh, I was not on alert. I had come off of alert when the tensions got a lot higher. So mm. what had happened was we went into a higher state of readiness. So we were uh, making sure all the airplanes were ready to go. Uh, not just the airplanes on alert, but we were also waiting for orders to uh, bring more sorties on alert, uh, mm -hmm. more bomber sorties on alert, more tanker sorties on alert, and those kinds of things. So it was it was a pretty tense time period. And then all of a sudden, one day, that submarine turned south and mm -hmm. went back down beyond Bermuda. And we're like, okay. And we'll, we come off of, you know, the repositioning plan and, and so forth and things went back to normal but during that time period uh, they were even considering having to leave us in the cockpits oh, and that's wow. when you that's when you really things get really tense okay right one person has to be on headset listening all the time uh, a pilot a co-pilot or a navigator has to be listening all the time to the command post uh, for the launch order and that's the way I wrote that in the book. Mm -hmm. And I wrote it based on a real world scenario. You know, I've had a lot of my friends call me, Hey, I don't remember us launching. I go, no, I wrote that just because of, of the book. But everyone <laughs> I talked to, all five of the guys that I talked to that were based up in the Northeast, they remember that two week period because Loring had all of its B-52s on alert with wow. uh, air launch cruise missiles. Plattsburgh, and P's had FB-111s, and we had all of our FB-111s all loaded, ready to go, and we were swapping ends of the runway, too. And then Griffiths, which was another SAC base in New York, had its B-52s and its tankers on alert mm -hmm. in that repositioning plan, okay? And moving a B-52 is a chore because it's such a big airplane. Mm -hmm. And it's carrying nuclear cruise missiles. Yeah. <laughs> so there's, there's, uh, as they would say at the post office, special handling is involved. Okay. <laughs> because yeah, you the airplanes think. are all loaded live, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and so that was a pretty tense time period. But I'll be honest with you. The first couple of times I was on alert, 
you know, I was like awake in the middle of the night. Okay. Is the class I'm going to go off, you know, cause I was just so new to it. But mm -hmm. after, you know, after I'd been on alert several times and, and it, that kind of wore off, it was like, okay, I'm here for another week. And yeah. believe it or not, guys did their master's degrees, uh, played a lot of Stratego, you know, <laughs> a lot of Monopoly, uh, read a lot of books, everything. But the Pease alert facility was at the south end of the runways, okay? Mm -hmm. And we were, we were predominantly at the south end of the runway, and predominantly we would take off to the north. So we'd come out of this big gated area, and drive right onto this big taxiway through this hammerhead and literally onto the runway and we'd be gone. Mm. And I'll never forget the first time my wife came out to the alert facility when I was on alert and it happened to be a really nice fall afternoon. You know, fall is beautiful up there as, as everybody's heard in New England, you know, beautiful colors and everything. Mm -hmm. And about every 30 feet or so, there's a sign that says use of deadly force is authorized. <laughs> and there's a tower at the corners with guards in it, uh, with weapons and so forth. And inadvertently, a ball that we had been playing with rolled right up to the fence. Okay. <laughs> we were playing catch. Okay. Yeah. Like, oh, it's okay. And uh, they get really energized if anybody gets within like 15 of that feet of that fence. Okay. Mm -hmm. So. The ball rolls up to the fence and we're like looking at the ball and, and looking around. I look up at the, at the tower and everything like that. And over the loudspeaker, this voice comes out, you can pick up the ball. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Oh, that was hilarious. So I walk over the fence and I grab it and walk back, <laughs> you know, and of course my wife, my future wife is like going, is that the way it is? And I go, Oh yes! Yeah, wow. you know oh, those yes. guys. You know those guys in the tower. They were like, "How long should we make them wait till we say something?" <laughs> I know. Oh, absolutely. You know, you got nineteen, twenty-year-olds up there with guns, and you know this crazy, you know, college-educated pilot. You know, how can we get his head? <laughs> That's awesome. You know? That's funny. But, like, like the voice but, of God coming over. Exactly. <laughs> Go pick up the ball. But that was kind of an interesting introduction for my future wife. Yeah. That we don't play around. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You, you know, there's some. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one, one thing I want to say before the next question or before you have something else to elaborate on on that, um, you know, all your stories and in your book, it, it's really, it really shows how important, you know, tanker gas is. I mean, you're yeah. not going to have any operation without planning your tankers. And oh. I, I just think it's so important for, you know, our listeners and for people to understand just how important these, you know, these KC jets are. I mean, it's nothing happens with, yeah. you know. I mean, nobody kicks ass without tanker gas. I don't know how many times we'll say that, but it's <laughs> awesome. And we'll say it as many times as we need to. Um, but, uh, you know, and the other thing that, you know, talking about this uh, experience that you were just explaining, you know, the FB-111s there, 
And I wanted to ask you, you know, the FB 111s, and they were there because of their high speed capabilities. Is that correct? Because, I mean, you guys are based there on alert, you know, far northeast of the United States. And the whole reason of having the FB 111s there instead of like B 52s or, you know, I mean, it was because of how quick they could react when you got you know, the go, go, go alert or whatever. That's absolutely correct. And, mm-hmm. and not only that, not only their fast dash speed, but, but they could do it low level at night in any weather. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. so, uh, so, so think of this as a Russian planner. Mm-hmm. You have an airplane that can go below 500 feet at dash speeds, okay, mock speeds, Although you Jeez. probably wouldn't do that, okay? <laughs> you probably wouldn't go on speeds, all right? Because you're burning gas like crazy, yeah. And is carrying either a B sixty one nuclear bomb, and you have to remember we had a nickname for him. It was Dial a Yield. You can actually <laughs> yeah, that's dial right. up, okay? you actually dial up or dial down the megatons, okay? Mm. Depending on what you want to do, and of course all the pilots are going. <laughs> If I'm going that far, I'm dialing all the way up. <laughs> uh, <Yeah>. Right. <laughs> but certain targets only needed certain kilotons, maybe megatons. Mm-hmm. You didn't know. But then the other threat that you had was a short-range attack missile with about a 100-mile footprint. Mm. 100-mile wow. footprint. Mm-hmm. So these things could come in and fly across... Norway, Finland, not be in uh, any bad guy territory for very long, fire one of these missiles off, maybe two, maybe more, turn around, come out. And the F-111 could sweep the wings, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. I haven't seen one of those in a long time, but uh, I remember they were pretty mean looking. Yeah. Yeah, they are. (laughs) So there's a picture of one in the book. And you'll see that the inboard pylons are empty. And the outboard pylon had a tank on it, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. Okay. That is pretty indicative of what the airplane looked like when it was on alert. It would have four external tanks. And then the inboards had the weapons on them. Whether mm-hmm. it be a B-61 or a short-range attack missile. Now, the outboard pylons kept the same sweep. Uh, the outboard pylons were canted in inward. Oh, okay. So you wanted to use that gas as quickly as you could. And when you punch that off, the pylon went with it. So the pylon and the tank came off. Oh, wow. Oh, jeez. So you, you wanted to use those as soon as you could. And then the other two, uh, the, the middle and the inboard, would move with the wings. So it was really odd to see a fully loaded FB-111 take off with those outboard tanks kind of canted in. I don't know what how many degrees, but yeah. they were canted inward a little bit, and it just looked unnatural <laughs> to see that on a really fast airplane. But those were the first ones that obviously would get uh, – you'd expend, use the gas out of expand mm-hmm. and so forth. Yeah. And then use – and typically, every every year we had a large 
exercise, strategic air command. It's called Global Shield, where we would sometimes deploy to someplace. We went to a place called Alpena, Michigan. They had a 9,000-foot runway, and our missions during that exercise took us from Alpena, Michigan to near Colorado, and the low-level routes that they were, the FB-111s were flying were through the Colorado mountains, mm-hmm. and then they had a post-strike refueling, too, that would bring them out, and it was simulating the environment that the FB-111s would have been flying in in a real-world situation. Wow, that, that was some that was some pretty interesting stuff to be part of that because you know, you'd hear the same messages, you know. Although they're exercise messages, uh, you'd hear the same uh, emergency order messages and, and a lot of the same procedures and command and control and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was pretty interesting at times, pretty crazy. Mark, I remember a chap or well in within this chapter. There was a part that kind of stood out to me as ominous, I guess would mm-hmm. be would be a good word for it. And it kind of made the hair stand up on the back of my neck when you talked about um, when you were flying, escorting, you know, or during a wartime situation strategically that, you know, it, it got to a point where you guys would have to possibly like offload all of your fuel and you guys wouldn't come back as a tanker you want to so so that's a (laughs) imagine reading in a doctrine document that they would give us the code word okay and there was a code word for it Mm -hmm. and it meant that you will offload all of your gas down to stand pipe fuel and it would say stand pipe fuel we had no idea how much that was Mm -hmm. all right but it said you will offload when you hear that you offload all your gas and um, and remember we used to be called tanker toads and it didn't have anything to do with frogs it was an acronym for take off and die oh my gosh yeah yeah that's, that's where crazy. that's where the that's where the word came from tanker toads and i found this in an old sack uh, document that mm-hmm. said, you know, this is where this nickname came from. Tanker Toads wow. means take off and die because we had no defenses on the airplane. We had no way to defend ourselves. Mm-hmm. And here we are. We're heading off to the nuclear war, you know, to the nuclear exchange and so forth. And fortunately for us at Pease Air Force Base, we would never, we would have never heard that. The B-52 guys, it's completely different. Because mm-hmm. you have to remember the B-52 holds 350,000 pounds of gas. Mm-hmm. 350, 320, 350,000 pounds of gas. And it would take two, maybe three tankers to fill those things back up again on some of these missions. Wow. I, I need to send to you guys, and you can find this on the web, the Strategic Air Command's operational report from the Cuban Missile Crisis is now unclassified. Ooh, that and sounds it, fascinating. It amazing, okay? <laughs> um, it's called Strategic Air Command Operations During the Cuban Crisis of 1962. I've got it downloaded here, and I'll send it to you. And it, but if you put that title in, it'll come right up on the web on a Cold War site. And, oh, my gosh, it makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck. Ooh, yeah, a thousand and three tankers on alert. Oh, wow. 
Really? A, a thousand, thousand and three? Containers on alert. And back then, they flew what was called Chrome Dome missions. And Chrome Dome was airborne alert. Mm. The B-52s were armed with four nuclear weapons and were airborne. They flew for 24 hours, and they had a certain route that they would fly that took them out over the Atlantic Ocean, into the North Sea, across Iceland and Greenland, northern Canada, through Alaska, and then back down home. And then another route that took them across the ocean into the Aegean Sea between Italy and Yugoslavia, and then back home. Wow. And they had tankers located in Spain. Uh, let's see, where else? Uh, Alaska. And then, of course, um, throughout the, uh, the eastern seaboard and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But in one case, the, the air refueling track over Alaska was called cold coffee. And the B-52 would actually go wait over the Barents Sea and hang out and then come down, take on 105 to 115,000 pounds, which was the, the maximum amount that you could offload out of a KC-135. Mm -hmm. And then it would turn around and go back and loiter for a couple more hours, then come back down again, take on 110 more, and then go home. And fly home. Wow. But it was holding north of Alaska with four nuclear weapons waiting for the word to go off. Okay. And General Powers, who was the Strategic Air Command commander during that time period, went to an eighth of the force airborne at any given moment. And I think <laughs> that even an eighth? An eighth of the bomber force and tanker force airborne with nuclear weapons. And there's some quotes at the beginning of this that you'll read that it'll just make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. Um, the U-2 overflights, that's the famous thing everybody always hears about. Mm -hmm. they, were, they were nicknamed Brass Knob Missions. And the first Brass Knob Mission was actually flown out of Edwards Air Force Base because they were using a U-2 with a brand new engine, an F model. And so the guy had to go and get, his name was Heiser, had to go and get trained on the new F model's engines. But the very first brass knob overflight of Cuba took off from Edwards Air Force Base, flew across the southern states to Texas, out over the Gulf of Mexico, down to the Yucatan, turned left, and he was only over Cuba for seven minutes. Oh, okay. But he got those pictures mm -hmm. during that time frame of the San Cristobal site and then continued north. And when they started downloading the pictures, they're like, going, oh, my gosh. And so they continued flying those missions until about, I think it was a week later. And there's a really good book on this, too by the commander of the F-8 Reconnaissance Squadron yeah. flying RF-8s. It's called Blue Moon over Cuba. And the low-level missions nickname was Blue Moon Missions. And he flew some of the very first Blue Moon Missions. And 
there's that uh, movie, 13 Days, I think is what it's called, mm-hmm. with Kevin Costner. Yeah. It portrays uh, uh, Ecker. His name is Bill Ecker, the commander of that RF-8 squadron. Mm-hmm. And it shows them going across like that on the first Blue Moon mission. And those were the pictures that Adlai Stevenson put up in the UN was those low-level pictures taken the day before Stevenson went and talked to the UN. Wow. <laughs> That's right. Now, now uh, the pilot of that F-8 um, mm-hmm. is – because I remember, I believe, that part in the movie where um, – He's he's asking him, you know, please don't say you got shot down. And he was like, "How about yeah. them sparrows?" Right? Is this is this the same yeah. mission we're talking about? It's exactly the same mission. And he was in fact told that because they knew that if Lemay found out they'd been shot at, he'd go down there and nuke the place. That was the last thing they wanted. <laughs> I, yeah, I remember that. You have to remember, Curtis Lemay is a very fascinating character. He's a huge Corvette fan. And so people would come to his house and he'd be in his coveralls all greased up working on his Corvettes. Here's a four-star general <laughs> on, at, at, off at Air Force Base, all greasy, you know, with a cigar in his mouth working on his car, okay? Yeah. And oh, hilarious. he's this guy that has tremendous experience from flying missions during – in Europe and in the Pacific, he was one of the guys that was an architect for the firebombing missions of Japan. Mm, wow. Uh, so he's now the chief of staff of the Air Force. And you see that gentleman, he plays it pretty well. That's kind of how fiery LeMay was. Mm-hmm. Well, when he I hear Curtis, when I hear Curtis LeMay's name, that's the face that I picture from the movie. Everybody does, you yeah. know. A lot of people do, but when you go and you read that Strategic Air Command Operations Report, and there's there are some things that are still blanked out, but it talks about the Blue Banner missions were the maritime reconnaissance, trying to find all the ships. The Brass Knob mission was all the U two. I mean, it goes into really incredible detail, and you have to remember. We only have about a, about two-thirds of the KC-135s because they're still being made. They're still using KC-97s yeah, to refuel some of these things. This is early 60s, right? Yeah, 62, October mm-hmm. of 62. Yep. And to make sure that the Russians were going to bring everything out of Cuba, uh, President Kennedy actually increased the DEFCON, and I can't remember which day it was. A, it was a, a day in November. I think it was the fourth of November. They flew seventy-four Chrome Dome missions in one day. Holy cow! Seventy-four. Seventy-four missions in one day, all of them carrying two to four nuclear bombs, all of them going east to Europe or over the over the poles and then of course the tanker sorties to be able to keep all that I did the math uh, it took 138 tanker sorties offloading about 110,000 pounds to keep all of those missions going on average about 110,000 pounds okay Jeez. so 
That's 11 million pounds. <laughs> if my math is right, okay? Yeah, just for one day. Wow. And during, during the invasion of Iraq, we were doing about 12 to 14 million pounds a day. Hmm. So that kind of gives you an idea of the amount of gas. Yeah. Wow. That we were using during that time frame. Really, really fascinating. It and, is uh, fascinating. I'll make sure uh, and your listeners, if they want to find this, I believe it's called Strategic Air Command Operations During the Cuban Crisis of 1962 is the name of the actual report. If you Google that, I'm sure it'll come right up. Yeah, you know. It's downloadable. it's downloadable. You can download it and, and, and read through it. But it's got the original SAC top secret cover on it. It's, yeah. it's amazing when you see it. It, like, it is cool. We actually cool. just pulled it up. We Googled it and brought it up. It's a PDF yeah. file. It's all yeah, scanned yeah. from the original documents. Um, now, now it has the top secret crossed out and unclassified stuff yeah. on it. It's really cool. Go to the table of contents and just read through that real quick. It talks about the U-2 and the reconnaissance operations. It talks about the nuclear missiles being on alert, the B-52, the airborne stuff, everything. I mean, it's it's amazing reading when you read it. It, it is cool. I'll, I'll quickly read some of these chapters. So chapter one, reconnaissance, electronic intelligence and weather flights, the U-2 over Cuba, uh, sea search, and then summary. And then uh, chapter yeah. two, bomber and tanker operations. Uh, Florida evacuation, uh, increased readiness posture. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's incredible. Wow. Yeah. So when you go to Disney World uh -huh. and you go to Orlando International Airport, mm -hmm. the identifier for Orlando is MCO. And Correct. you probably wonder, why, why isn't it ORL or something like that? Because mm -hmm. Orlando International Airport used to be McCoy Air Force Base. Oh, and the, that's cool. The alert Christmas tree, you can go on Google Earth right now and still see it. The alert Christmas tree and the alert facility are still there to this day. Really? Oh, that's cool. Oh, that's interesting. Yes. I, I yes. didn't know that's why it was MCO. Good to know. I remember being a young kid when we were living in Atlanta, Georgia. My father would take us when we were out of school with him to Martin Marietta, which is in Orlando. Mm -hmm. And there was this Holiday Inn right next to the airport. And we would watch the big belly, big black tail B-52s mm -hmm. coming in and out and flying uh, training sorties in the pattern there at McCoy Air Force Base when I was a kid. And when you look at Google Earth, you can still see in the southwest corner of the airfield, the alert Christmas tree, the alert building, and you can still barely see the run out from the Christmas tree to the runway, but it's mostly overgrown now. But you can still see it there when you look at it. But yeah, the next time you go into Orlando, and you're going down to Universal Studios or Disney World, mm -hmm. look at your boarding pass, and it says MCO. KMCO mm -hmm. is Orlando International Airport now. It used to be McCoy Air Force Base, which was the main base they were using during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Homestead Air Force Base and McCoy were, were just really, really busy during that time period. And the Blue Moon missions, the F-8 reconnaissance missions were taking off out of Homestead because it's only like a 30-minute flight. It was really short. 
Oh, that's cool. Really short. But wait till you read that. If if you think my chapter raises the hair on the back of your neck, wait till you read that thing. <laughs> you see right? 74 B-52s airborne in one day flying armed reconnaissance, armed alert missions in the Aegean Sea. Yeah, you know, and that, that gives me not only chills and the hair on the back of my neck because of what was happening, but that also kind of gives me chills to know how ready we were like as a country and the preparedness and like that makes me feel pretty pretty damn good about you know the readiness of our our air force and military because you know even though we were facing something like that it's awesome to know that um even back then how prepared they were it makes me feel a little more comfortable now that you know with the technology and Mm -hmm. and uh so that's uh, awesome story, and yeah, I can't I, wait to read that report. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's an amazing time period when you think about it. And, and uh, there's a number of books that your listeners can go out and and get. One's called uh, One Minute to Midnight, um, which goes into a lot of the political intrigue that was going on back and forth. Uh, Blue Moon over Cuba is really fascinating book. Bill Ecker is dead now. He passed away a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. But that book is still uh, available. You can still buy it on Amazon. That's where I got mine. And he goes through all of the missions that they fly and some of their close encounters, too. Mm. And Ecker, later on in his life, actually got to go down to Cuba and walk through the hardened cement bunker that had the nuclear missile warheads inside the one that he took on the first day that he flew the mission down. Wow. He he, he talks about it. Yeah. Yeah, They had had some kind of... For him. Oh, can you imagine that? (laughs) You know, know, going down there, you know, 20, 30 years later and being with Cubans Mm -hmm. and Russians and Americans, and they had some little ceremony or something like that, and he actually gets to walk into this the concrete bunker that he took pictures of that very first flight, and they had this little ceremony in there, and he's like talking about how surreal it was oh, to be down there to be going through this. It was no, yeah. some fascinating stuff. There were others, you know, other Americans that had gone down for this too, and it was but yeah, <laughs> you know, that That'd be like going to Pyongyang and going through Kim Jong-un's palace like 30 years from now. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you know what stands out, too, about these stories is that, you know, the United States actually had a nuclear weapon you could dial down how powerful it was. And I guarantee you the Russians didn't have that because <laughs> they probably didn't give yeah. a crap about anybody. <laughs> well, and... In some of these books, particularly Blue Moon Over Cuba, he goes into the intelligence and how they could how they could look at the pictures and say, okay, this is what the boat has on it. Mm-hmm. And the reason – it's funny because the Air Force couldn't fly those missions because the RF-8s had brand-new cameras that the Air Force – uh, RF-101s did not have. Mm. And that's why they were picked to go fly those missions was because 
uh, I think it was because the, the cameras were able to operate at the low levels that the F-8s were flying at and still take really good, clear pictures, mm-hmm. whereas the Air Force didn't have uh, those cameras with the with the right apertures on them, mm. which is why mm-hmm. the RF-8 uh, squadron got to go down there and do that. And he talks about all the books. There's really some fascinating stuff. Were, were those RF-8 missions, so, I, I'm trying to remember, were they uh, land-based or were they launching off carriers? Land-based. Land-based out of Homestead. Okay. And, um, and, oh, Eckers, talk, Eckers talks about when he landed and was told to go to Washington with the film and everything that's portrayed in the movie, you know, he said, uh, you know, I had to go up there and, uh, and take the film up there and they looked at it. So there's some, there's some partial truth about him being ordered to go to Washington DC <laughs> and he sees all these generals and, and admirals and asking them, you know, what happened and so forth. He talks about that in the book. <laughs> oh, that's nice. I'd well, like to read about that. that. Because he was alive when they were making the movie. He was, I think he was one of the, um, I think he was one of the advisors to that movie. Because I think Kevin, he talks about meeting Kevin Costner mm-hmm. in one of the uh, chapters, I think, later on or something like that. And and I, I did a, a Google search on him and, and uh, I found a picture of he and Costner together. So Eckers was one of the advisors to the movie and talked about some of those things to him and showed him, you know, here's, here's what happens. Nice. Yeah. Wow. Really fascinating. Stuff, fascinating. But, Definitely. Um, I, I think I'm going to go ahead and ask something else. Um, if these guys are okay yeah. with it. Um, uh, when, uh, Aaron and I had met you, uh, in person and, you know, we spoke and had lunch and, and all that. Um, I'm going to, keep on topic here with crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, and, cool. and, you know, I'm not sure if you enjoy telling the same story over and over again, but, um, <laughs> cause I'm sure you've told this story, but could you just sort of share with our listeners, um, what it was like, um, for you in your position at the time, uh, the morning of September 11th and just sort of, kind of maybe give our listeners a, a glimpse of, you know, from your mouth, what that was like. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> that was we're fun. fascinated. Hey, we want to hear When you again. told that story, Mark, it like stuck with me. So, yeah. I mean, I'm just kind of, well, you know. It's like the day you got married. It's, it's an image that will never leave your mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things, you know, when your kids are born, when you're married, there's just certain images that will never leave your brain ever again. And you can close your eyes and within nanoseconds bring that situation back to your cranium. Mm-hmm. Travis, our youngest child, had been born a month before on the 16th of August. I had just come off of maternity leave. I had flown one flight, I think Thursday the week before. I was not scheduled to fly that day, but I was going to come in and do some work or instruct. At 5.50 in the morning, one of my wife's dear friends, Stacy, calls on the phone and 
again, being a light sleeper, woke me up. And I could hear her screaming through the phone going, where's Mark? Where's Mark? Where's Mark? And my wife, Valerie, said to her, well, he's right here next to me with the baby. It's 5.50 in the morning. You know, get a clue here, lady. <laughs> and And she goes, have him turn on the TV. An airplane has hit a building in New York. And I rolled over groggy, and and I am a news junkie. <laughs> so I had the remote next to me. I pick it up. I turn on Fox News, and I see the North Tower burning. Yeah. That first image in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, how could an airline pilot with thousands of hours, tens of thousands of hours, run into something like that? Mm-hmm. But my subconscious was saying, you are under attack. Mm -hmm. But I kept putting it out of my mind, and I'm sitting there, and I'm listening, and it's only four minutes after the first tower has been hit. And I'm sitting there in bed, Travis between us, and we're watching this, and I'm wa listening to him, and were, but in my subconscious, I'm going, you got to get going. You're under attack. Yeah. You're under attack. And, and, but I'm fighting my own emotions, thinking to myself, first of all, nobody be stupid enough to do that. Mm -hmm. And you go through your head and you're saying to yourself, nobody would do that. Who could possibly do such a thing? You know, but at the same time, how could an airliner with two pilots, tens of thousands of hours, hit a building square like that? And while I was going through this in my head and was listening to the morning Fox News commentators, I saw an airplane come out of the top right of the screen, turn and disappear behind the towers. And I thought, where's that guy going? <laughs> and then I saw the fireball yeah. come out. And immediately... It was like a switch in my back had gone from off to on. Mm -hmm. And my blood was pumping. My brain was wide awake. And I stripped off all my clothes, run into the shower. Because I don't know why this entered my head, but I didn't want to go to work with messy night hair. <laughs> okay? <laughs> I... Why do you think that? I don't know. But I said to myself, I want to wash my hair because I don't know when I'm going to be home again. Yeah. And I'm the lead planner, a lieutenant colonel, lead planner, graduate, former commander of the only tanker graduate school in the world. And our third class was going through at that time. Mm -hmm. I get in the shower and I'm shaving real quick washing my hair. I'd only been in the shower about three minutes when my wife comes in and said, you just got recalled. The wing commander just called and recalled you. He wants you to come in immediately. I said, okay. My wife sensed I was in a hurry. She had my boots, a new flight suit out, everything laying on the bed. Threw that all on and I'm sitting there watching two buildings burn now. Mm -hmm. And I got to tell you, I'm pissed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
I am. I am. All of those emotions of somebody is trying to kill me. Mm-hmm. It is time to go kill somebody who's trying to kill me. Mm-hmm. And that was a very common emotion when I was in work that day. Mm-hmm. My wife asks me the typical question. Silly question, hon. When do you think you're going to be home? And I'm lacing up my boots watching TV, and I said, "Hun, tonight, tomorrow, Friday, I don't know. I love you. And by this time, all my kids are in on the bed, and they're crying and everything. They see Dad to hurry in, and they see buildings burning. And it affected my kids. And I ran downstairs, got in the car, and left with a couple of my kids crying behind me. Mm-hmm. Came down off the South Hill. I uh, went kind of the back way. And the next thing I see are cops. And they are all rucked up. Helmets, bulletproof vests, shotguns, ARs in their cars, everything. Of course, they see me in uniform. And they're kind of giving me the thumbs up, you know, and I'm giving them the thumbs up. I'm good. I'm good. I'm on my way into work. And... I just keep going on the freeway, get to the get to the base, and there's this long line to get on the base because they'd recalled a lot of people to come in and helps. And there's only one way to get on the base, and that's through this one gate. Hmm. And I was really worried that somebody could just come down and just throw hand grenades and take out half of the personnel on the base. Yeah. Unfortunately, they had people guards all the way down, and, and we got in. I got into the command post. Just, uh, just before the Pentagon uh, got hit, mm. that was the next thing I saw on TV. And you know, it, and you see, you know, the alert, and they start saying an airplane has hit the Pentagon. And now we're thinking to myself, "Oh my gosh, what's happening now?" Yeah. Now, I'm going to shift gears real quick. A very good friend of mine was an F-16 pilot with the Fresno Guard. All they do is air defense. Mm -hmm. They don't do air to ground at all. All they are, their whole mission is to defend the Western United States. So they've got airplanes on alert up and down the West Coast. Of course, the F-15 unit of Portland, same thing. He got a phone call at exactly the same time I did from his sister-in-law, which woke him up at 5.50 in the morning. He says he remembers seeing it on the clock. It was from his wing commander. His wing commander told him, come in now. Don't worry about the lights. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and and my, my buddy's call sign is Shredder. And Shredder goes, sir, what are you talking about? He said, turn on the TV, get here as soon as you can. He turns on the TV, and he sees the same thing I do. And he's an American Airlines pilot. So he sees the building burning, and I can't remember if it was an American plane that hit the first building or not. I think it was. I think it was was American. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So here they're telling him American has hit the building, and he's an American pilot. So he's thinking to himself, wait a minute. This is somebody I know. 
this is somebody I know, but he's getting dressed and getting ready to go in. And Andrea's wife is like the same thing. Okay. You know, what's going on? You know, he says, I'm going, I'm going flying, I guess. And he makes this mad dash to the base. They have a jet ready for him when he's there. He says, you too brief. He's, he's the wingman. He's got his flight lead. And they take off as a pair in two F-16s. And their cap station is San Francisco International Airport. <clears throat> so they turn and head for San Francisco International Airport as a two-ship. He gets over the top of San Francisco International Airport. And he says, it was the eeriest thing he's ever seen. Not a vehicle was moving. Wow. Hmm. He looked down. He says, they went into the first turn. And he looking down. There's no cars moving. There's no trucks moving. There's no fuel trucks moving. There's no airplanes moving. Everything is completely shut down at a major, major international airport. Jeez. The next thing they have to do is figure out what is our rules of engagement. Mm -hmm. Because both of them were airline pilots. Now, I want you to think about this. I want your listeners to think about this. They're now talking across the radio how they might have to shoot down one of their buddies. Jeez. You don't think about that when you're... When you're... Oh, when all this is going on, or even afterwards, you know, it, oh, there's no rules of engagement, <clears throat> Brian. Mm -hmm. There's no rules of engagement for, for employing live weapons on an airliner that's being used as a cruise missile in the United States. Everything was on the fly. Hmm. And so he, if I remember right, he and his flight lead came up with the idea so that neither one of us has to live with the grief of shooting down American citizens, we will both fire together. Oh, wow. All right. And the F-16 burns about 3,500 pounds an hour, carries 9,000 pounds internally, 350 gallons in each tank. So they're going to need gas soon. You see where the story's going? Yeah, I sure do. <laughs> Enter the tanker. F-15s F are taking off out of Portland. They burn 8,000 pounds an hour, hold about 15.5 or so. Uh, they probably had two external tanks, 4,000 pounds more. And so all of these airplanes are burning gas, capping over all of the big population centers across the, the West Coast. Mm -hmm. But tankers haven't been launched yet. Mm. And the Western Air Defense Center, well, excuse me, Western Air Defense Sector is called, call sign Bigfoot. And Bigfoot's managing all of these fighters and everything, and they're trying to get tankers up. And I'm at the largest tanker base on the West Coast. When I get in, we have 45 minutes to figure out how to refuel all of these fighters that are already airborne. Hmm. But yet at the same time, we haven't gotten orders to have anybody fly. Fortunately, one of my good buddies who worked for me during the invasion, 
in 2003, two years later, Weibo is the main scheduler for the base. And he's already putting crews in crew rest, already getting diplomatic clearance with the Canadians to open up airspace uh, over Vancouver and next to, um, oh, shoot, what's the name of the base in Alberta? They have another base in Alberta where their F-18s were doing an exercise. And uh, he called that one a stampede because it's, it's where they have the big stampede every year in, in Canada. Mm-hmm. And then the one near Vancouver, he called Orca, you know, after killer whales, because there's always killer whales. In there. <laughs> all right. But all of these airplanes are airborne, and now they're needing gas, looking for gas. And we're having to launch sorties to go up and refuel them. And our very first sortie out of Spokane, Washington, is to go to Bozeman, Montana. And we're like going, what? <laughs> what the heck is in Bozeman, Montana? What's so important at Bozeman, Montana that I have to leave airplanes over Seattle that need gas now? And they said, that's your first mission. And what it was, was the Federal Emergency Management Agency's team that deals with these kinds of disasters. They had been at Bozeman, Montana doing an exercise and needed an immediate ride mm-hmm. to Washington, D.C. and New York City. Wow. Shortly thereafter, we were told, launch airplanes. And fortunately, Weibo had crews that were coming in on training missions that could launch, and he was pumping every airplane up to 180,000 pounds. Maximum fuel mm-hmm. load, 180,000 mm-hmm. pounds. And he had called down to billeting, got rooms for these guys. You guys stay there until I call you. And all these guys were in their rooms getting called. Okay, you're going to Seattle. Okay, you're going to Portland. And I'm in the command post thinking, okay, what are the five places that we need to defend? Biggest population centers from north to south. Okay, Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, Los Angeles, San Diego. Mm-hmm. Where are all my alternates? Where can I land? If I can't land back here, where am I going to go? Okay, well, I've got airplanes, McCord is a base, Spokane's a base, Portland is a base, Travis is a base, March is a base. Uh, don't want to use North Island Naval Air Station because it's got a short runway, but it, you know, it'll do in a pinch. And so all these things are what I'm having to go through in my mind, and I'm doing all this tanker math to figure out how many tankers I'm going to need. And my answer was about 140 tankers a day, and we were going to just to do the West Coast, it was going to cost about 17 million pounds a day wow. to keep to keep a 24-hour combat air patrol over each one of these cities. An F-15 four-ship to fly a 24-hour cap requires 18 KC-135 sorties if they're not shooting missiles. Jeez. Because, because if you're shooting missiles, the first thing that comes off is the centerline fuel tank right. at 4,000 pounds. You've immediately lost 4,000 pounds of gas that you will not get back. Mm. Wow. And so I had to figure all this into my into my brain, and that's what I'm doing while I'm going in. So my buddy Shredder is already launched, and I know he's already airborne. Mm. And I know the Portland Guard's already airborne, so I've got to react quickly mm-hmm. to getting all these airplanes out. But Air Mobility Command was still waiting to hear what do you want us to do 
because we've never been through anything like this. Right. And then finally, North Northern Command and the people at Cheyenne Mountain are going, we got caps all over. We got to get tankers up. We gotta get, and, and finally stuff started coming in. And so now all of a sudden there's this big burst of activity. And tankers are flying all over. But I told my wing commander, I said, sir, we are going to have airplanes on alert. We have to figure out where we're going to put them. We've got this old strategic air command alert facility out there. We haven't used it in a decade. They actually sent an airman out there with a telephone and had him plug it in and call the <laughs> command post to make sure the phone system worked. Because <laughs> nobody had been in there for a <laughs> Nobody had used it. Wow. That morning, there were seven tankers on alert throughout the United States at, at 8 o'clock when the first airplane mm-hmm. By 4 or 5 o'clock that afternoon, I think there was 142. Wow. Dang. Okay. 142. So all of this, you have to remember, is being done on the fly. But fortunately, we had our school that had two classes that had gone through already. and. Two of our first graduates, uh, one graduate from the first class, one graduate from the second class, left on Wednesday morning to go to Tyndall, and they created the Noble Legal Air Refueling Plant. Mm. Two captains. Wow, that's cool. Two young, two young captains <laughs> went down there, and and they really impressed people. And these two guys are really impressive guys too. Dewey and Staples are really impressive guys. <laughs> All right. Really quick story. Staples. All right. That's not his real name. <laughs> yeah. As part of our schooling, we went out to an aircraft carrier. And he was in the second class. We took, went out to the aircraft carrier. And in the middle of the night, since he was a young captain, he got, you know, room for six. Right under the deck, right under the landing area. And in the middle of the night, about 11 o'clock, a hornet comes in, does its carrier landing, and he's in the top bunk, and he raises up and hits oh. the bulkhead with the top of his head. <laughs> Almost knocks him silly. <laughs> it, he's in this dark room with one of our instructors, X-Man, and he hops down off the bunk, and he says to X-Man, you got to help me get to the infirmary. I hurt my head. And X-Man's looking up at him at 11 o'clock going, what are you doing? Why are you waking me up? And he's holding the top of his head, and finally X-Man sees the blood running through his fingers. And, and he says, you have to take me to the infirmary. I opened up my head. I banged my head on the bulkhead above me. And so X-Man takes him down there. Well, they don't do stitches on aircraft carriers. <laughs> they do staples. Oh, my God. And so they got the little staple going to go boom, 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 and staple his head shut. And that's why he got his call sign. That's awesome. That's a great story. Nice. <laughs> hey, Mark, how many hours would you say went by from the time the second aircraft hit the second tower and they were up on station uh, over some of these Western airports? Uh, less than 30 minutes. Less than 30 minutes. I, less than 30 wow. minutes. Wow. So. Uh, Ray told me. Ray told me from the time he got a phone call from his wing commander to the time that he was over the top of San Francisco International mm-hmm. was a little less than forty-five minutes. 
See, that's amazing to me because, and kind of getting back to when you were talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis and, you know, Ryan was saying, you know, how impressed he was was with everything. I mean, the level of readiness we had back then during the Cold War, we knew our adversary. We knew what they were capable of and, and we thought we, you know, would know their tactics and what kind of you know, red flags were going up, then we could recognize and be ready. The weapon. But the yeah. what? Yeah, we thought we could recognize the weapons yeah. they right. were going to use. And Absolutely. And yeah. so here we are, we fast forward to 2001, and, you know, the Cold War is over, essentially, and there's really no adversaries other than, you know, these these guys in the desert in the Middle East you know, they would kind of, you know, cause some trouble here every now and then. We had no idea what, what they were capable for, but yet we still had a level of readiness that we were able to respond that quickly. That's amazing to me. Yeah. And you and all of your listeners need to go back and read, I think it's the 1998 fatwa that bin Laden put out mm-hmm. that really started us looking at who is this guy? Mm-hmm. And what is he trying to do? But a lot of people are like going, he's not coming here. He's not going to do anything to us. Nothing's going to happen. And we had some indicators that life may be getting hard for us. But none of us would have thought an airliner as a Christmas. Yeah, right. None of us. It was so surreal watching that unfold that morning because I think all of us were glued to the TV. Mm -hmm. And I think all of us saw the second aircraft go into the the second tower. I did, yeah. I did too. And I I remember I can still, I can close my eyes and still see that image in my mind. And Mm -hmm. the immediate emotions that I got thinking to myself, I have to go defend the United States but I'm madder than a horn and I want to go kill somebody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, we had a Lieutenant Colonel, a very good friend of mine too, because he'd been my ops officer in Okinawa who was now at Fairchild also. And we had to put him on a chain cause he was going to chew through a rope. <laughs> 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 he was, he was ready to go. Immediately, let's go over there. We got the nukes. We know how to do this. All of us sack train warriors. Let's load up and just head east. Okay. And, and we're all like going, you know, Dave, kind of calm down. <laughs> and, but that was the emotion a lot of us had. Yeah. How could this happen on American soil? How could we let it happen? And and you see what it caused too about all the different wars that happened mm-hmm. and, yeah. and continue on. And I, 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 I'm kind of happy that Trump's going to bring a lot of people home and go, look, you Middle Eastern folks need to figure this out. We can't come over here every time something happens like this, right. you know? And, but we still have threats over there. Like, Hassan yeah. Soleimani. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, not anymore, but his replacement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
But you have to remember, for a very long time, he's been involved in killing Americans over in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There's a there. I fortunately have a somebody that I know that was a psychologist in the army and was an interrogator of these people to include being at Gitmo and in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And he told me, he says, you cannot imagine the hatred that these people have for us. When he was talking to uh, the sheikh that helped plan the attacks, he held up his hands and he said, I cut Pearl's head off with these blessed hands. And he held up his hands with his fingers spread. He was thinking, and he believes, I am going to heaven because these hands cut off the head of one of the great Satan's journalists. <laughs> That's Think about that for a Yeah. That's what he said. I cut off his head's head with these blessed hands. And that's the hatred that they have for us. And I did not, I have never run into anybody like that. And the amount of time that I spent in the Middle East, all of the people that I worked with were members of the Saudi military. Matter of fact, one guy you read about in the book, General Batter, member of the royal family, mm-hmm. loved him. Loved us being there, understood why we were there. But how long has this been going on in the Middle East? How long have they hated Israel? Well, let's see. Abraham. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's go way back. It's been a minute. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's been a few minutes, you know? And. I don't know what it's going to take to bring peace in the Middle East when you have terrorist organizations like Hezbollah and Hamas teaching their young children to take out plastic knives and cut the heads off of toy rabbits and telling the kids, those are Americans, those are Israelis, those are Jews. Mm -hmm. It's so embedded in them from such an early age. I don't know that it'll ever end. Actually, I don't know that there'll ever be peace over there. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I I don't. My opinion, and this is Marcus Air Knuckle Dragon Tanker <laughs> Pilot opinion. <laughs> with the way the current world situation is right now, I don't see it. Yeah, I can't see it happen. The Iranians are trying to embarrass the the U.S. Did you see today that President Trump has? Given the, uh, the, the given the orders to fire on any ship that intrudes uh, any U.S. Yeah, ship. Yeah, I did see that. The, yeah, the the gunboats that are coming out by the Navy vessels with loaded guns on the front. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Here's something that you may not know: is that F-15E Strike Eagles have been flying maritime patrols because of those gunboats. And they are carrying some very fascinating weapons to do so. <laughs> of course, they're armed air to air, so they've got A9X and AMRAMs. Mm-hmm. But they have been carrying laser guided bombs, and they have been carrying 
what's called sensor-fused weapons, or CBU-105. It's a smart cluster bomb that we use for hunting tanks and engine decks. And if you Google CBU-105 and look at some of the videos, it's the most amazing thing you've ever seen. <laughs> it has 40 skeets, and they look like hockey pucks, inside the canister that have an IR sensor in them and they spin up real fast and they point toward the vehicles that they want to destroy and send like a molten spall of magnesium down through the engine decks. And then around that molten spall are these little indentations that when the thing explodes, make like 50 caliber mini balls that go through thin skin vehicles and people and stuff like that. Wow. It is the most amazing. If you Google sensor fused weapon and go to the videos, it it is incredibly amazing. We've been working on this for a long time, Mm. but it's perfect for swarms of boats like Mm -hmm. that. Okay. But so, so is a 20 millimeter. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. (laughs) And the air force realized that this is a potential threat and has actually done some exercises in the Gulf of Mexico against small patrol boats like this coming in swarms, Mm -hmm. swarms of boats. Because you'll notice in those videos, it isn't just one boat. There's several of them out there. And you know what the perfect weapon was for it? The hog, the A-10. Hell yeah. (laughs) The A-10 carry CBU-105. But it can't defend itself like an F-15E can. So what you have is a maritime strike coordination and reconnaissance kind of thing going on. We call it SCAR, where the hogs may be looking for stuff and the strike eagles are the hammer and the anvil. But somebody sent me some pictures of these F-15Es in the Middle East doing maritime. He said, he asked, he goes, Strike Eagle's doing maritime? And sure enough, that's what it said in the definition. And I looked at the bomb load and I went, ooh, CBU-105, <laughs> sensor fusion. <laughs> not, not good. Yeah. You know, I've, I've also because seen these, that the Army has been working with the Navy, too, with Apache's maritime. Yeah. So they're, they definitely know the threat. Because they have the Hellfire and the the British have an incredible missile called Brimstone. If you guys have seen pictures of the Panavia tornadoes mm-hmm. with those three missiles in the back, those are Brimstone missiles. And they've got a bigger punch than the Hellfire. Uh, the newer ones actually talk to each other. And again, you can go on YouTube and see this if you Google Brimstone. It shows three brimstone missiles being launched at three separate ship targets, and the missiles are data linking, talking to each other. I got this one. Okay, I'll take the one in the middle. Okay, I got the one <laughs> on the other end. <laughs> and they hit dead center. Wow. That's pretty awesome. Dead center. So it's not just the U.S. having looked at these patrol boats, but others have looked at this too. And these small missiles give you the ability to loiter for a long time, mm-hmm. but still hit the precision guided munitions. 
and of course you've got the F-15E that's got the sniper targeting pod. Um, they're carrying a new pod that's called Dragon's Eye, and it's some kind of potted radar mm -hmm. that's classified. Yeah, we've but most of the F we've seen some going over there. we've seen some E models down at Nellis fly with that. Yeah, yeah it, it's a big pod too. It's not small by any means. <laughs> it's Grumman, and it's got some type of electro, uh, active electronically scanned uh, radar in it, uh, which is also a sensor as well as something you can use to attack electronics and some other things. Uh, but they're really not talking about what that thing could do. And I've seen one hung on an AC-130 gunship, mm. too. Wow. Which would really be interesting. And Boy, you talk about a boat swarm and an AC-130 gunship. <sighs> <laughs> yeah. <God. laughs> yeah, that's... Uh, yeah, they'd have a heyday. It's a turkey shoot, right? Yeah. yeah. So, some of the AC-130 gunships carry what's called a Griffin missile made by Raytheon, but some of them are now carrying small diameter bombs. Four of them on, on racks on the outboards, too. So, now they're carrying... The same precision guided bomb that some the Strike Eagles are carrying mm -hmm. and the F 16. Oh, wow. They're 250 pound um, satellite guided weapons, very precise. And I worked on a program before I left the military on how we can use satellite guided bombs to sink ships. <laughs> Classified, obviously, but it was a joint program to take satellite-guided weapons and sink ships. They took the USS Schenectady out of mothballs, were dragging it behind another ship. A B-52 dropped three 2,000-pound JDAMs on it, hit it uh, forward, amidship, and aft, and I think sank it in like seven months. <laughs> using Using data from the joint stars and its moving target indicator radar on the bot. So when you talk about these different boat swarms and things like that, they don't know what they're in for. Yeah, they don't. <laughs> and I hope there's lots of video of them being destroyed too. I'd yeah. love to see it. <laughs> One of the things I had in my notes here was I, I talked to people about the three pillars of military operations. The first one is joint integrated fires. When I say joint and integrated, it's the Global Hawk sending pictures to the Strike Eagles, sending pictures to the ships. It's the use of the sensor-fused weapons. It's use of the Hellfire. It's the use of brimstone all these different tools that the coalition has. The second one is persistent intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, where you have things like the Global Hawk or, or Reaper, the Navy Scan Eagle that they launch off the back of the ship. All of those assets giving you wall-to-wall -wall information hmm. so that you have the best information you need to look at what's happening but we're also listening to what they're talking about, watching them move, where did they come from, all of those things. 
And that's where persistent intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance comes from. Yeah. And then the last is continuous humanitarian operations. And in our previous episode, I talked about how to turn an aircraft carrier into humanitarian carrier, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yes. Those, those are really the three pillars of military operations, the three-legged stool that we stand on when we go out and do things now. Mm -hmm. And a boat swarm is something that we have looked at for a long time, realized it is a problem, realized that it was probably going to be an Iranian threat in the Persian Gulf, mm -hmm. which is long and narrow and relatively shallow. And you've got, of course, landlock on both sides with the Gulf Coast nations and then, of course, Iran that runs pretty much the whole eastern coast belongs to Iran. And thousands of these boats running around. Mm -hmm. That could potentially be a threat. Because look at what happened to the USS Cole. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yep. Yeah, they do. One of those could go machine gun on the nose to ramming one of our ships very easily. But because of the USS Cole, they have now implemented uh, certain procedures and you know, the Gatling guns, the Sea Whiz systems that they have on the ship's mm -hmm. now all, all have an infrared uh, sensor on it now that you can manually operate and shoot at things now. Too. Oh, nice. So it's, yeah. it's not just the IR, it's also the IR sensor. That has been a very, very versatile weapon. And I'm sure you guys have seen how they've taken Sea Whiz on land <laughs> yeah. and use it as a counter-mortar counter uh counter uh missile type of weapon. all those videos are yeah, amazing it is with all the all the <laughs> tracers that you can yeah. see and yeah, it's incredible oh, yeah. you know, and, and, and like the a10 you know the, the gun just goes mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's shooting a, a hundred bullets a second you know Jeez. so there's a hundred pieces of 20 millimeter lead out there and, uh, <laughs> that's crazy well imagine what that those little patrol boats. Yeah, I'm glad President Trump did step up and, you know, increase that rules of engagement just to stop the harassment because, you know, somebody has to put them in their place and let these, uh, I don't know if you call them terrorists or, you know, Iranian military just know that they, they can't be doing stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, well, you see the videos. It's like yeah. they're tempting them. Yeah. To, you know, and so I'm glad it's yeah. finally like, all right, we're done yeah. with this crap. You know, you... Yeah. You want to threaten us and you're probably going to die. Yep. Well, and you notice they never take on an Aegis cruiser. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's always, you know, a little small patrol boat or one of those. It's that massive um, store ship. It's a supply ship. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. It has this large deck you plant things on, you know, and they're running around that thing and, and Coast Guard cutters and stuff like mm -hmm. that. Uh, I don't know, guys. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. I'm sure they're watching the news too and seeing President Trump. You know, the Iranians are watching them going, okay, you know, open season on anybody that you know, starts interfering with mm -hmm. us and we'll see what happens. Yeah, it'll be yep. interesting. But it all comes down to the rules of engagement, guys. Mm -hmm. And what is the threat? What is it doing? And what are its, its, its intentions? Those are the three things that you really have to think about when you're drafting rules of engagement, mm -hmm. what is the threat? What is it doing? And what are its, its intentions? Mm -hmm. 
because the USS Cole, the the ship that the the little boat that ran into it, actually had been going around it, and then all of a sudden it got close because you know everybody was used to seeing it down there, and all of a sudden it got close, and then it just turned and ran right into the ship. Mm-hmm. That'll never happen again. Oh yeah, <laughs> but again, what is the threat? What is it doing right now? What are its intentions in the mm-hmm. future? Those are the three things you got. Yeah, when you're doing that. Um, speaking of threat, I I do have a question that I even wanted to ask you on the last podcast, and um, sure. um, you know, you've got several stories in your book about you know flying the KC-135 into enemy airspace and how close you were to some enemy aircraft at times. Um, you know, and other tanker crews. Um, why not throw an AIM-120 on a KC-135? <laughs> Seriously. I mean, yeah. I know it sounds ridiculous because you have all this combat air. So, you know, I mean, you got F-15s, F-22s, you know, for, for all these missions going on now. But but honestly, like, why not put some kind of defensive weapon like a long range, you know, well, I guess advanced medium range, but you know, like a throw some one twenties on a KC one thirty five is a last case, you know, scenario. Well, and, and obviously, people have thought about. Yeah, that. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, I bet times. you've had conversations yeah. about that. And you guys have probably seen some of the drawings of the B one loaded down with, yeah, like six or eight of them on it, racks and, and so forth. So it becomes like this massive air-to-air supersonic platform and all you got to do is just put the right radar in. Mm-hmm. Um, that's part of the issue with the KC-135 is you have to have the right radar, mm-hmm. obviously, and also have a weather radar. Uh, the reason they don't do it is because that's not our mission. The F-22, the F-15, now the F-35 mm-hmm. are really good. Mm-hmm. And you have to remember the F-15, 104 kills to no losses. <laughs> yeah. I'm wearing that hoodie right now. Another air superior <laughs> yeah. yeah, I saw that, and that's why I brought this up. <laughs> you know, is there another airplane out there that's got a kill ratio of 104 to nothing? No. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not just the airplane, obviously. It's the weapons, but it's also the guy or gal sitting in the seat. Mm-hmm. How are they trained? Mm -hmm. And I will guarantee you, there is not an Air Force out there that can get through a four-ship of F-15Es, F-22s, F-35s with four graduates of the weapons school sitting in the cockpit. (laughs) It just won't happen. Yeah. Teaching at our weapons school and being involved with the one at Nellis during the, it's called advanced integration now, it's called mission employment back then, which went for two weeks. Mm-hmm. And seeing how we operate and how we do things. We would commonly say, why does anybody want to mess with us? But you read about a time in the book, you know, where things didn't go well on the range and we lost some airplanes one mm-hmm. night, you know. Right. But again, that was training. Yeah. In the real world, you don't make those kind of mistakes. Mm-hmm. You, just, you just don't. You, you, you're trained 
to such a razor's edge that, yeah, the airplane's great. The missiles are great. The engines are fantastic. <laughs> they sucked out a lot of gas. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but it's still the person in the cockpit yeah. in our training. The Chinese don't have a training program like that. The Russians don't have a training program like that. No one in the Middle East does. You look at all of the potential nations that would threaten us, and you say to yourself, they don't train like we do. Mm -hmm. And that really is our ace in the hole. You guys have been down to Nellis and have seen the mass launches of airplanes going out doing those three military pillars that I told you, joint integrated fires, persistent intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, continuous humanitarian operations, all of those things going on. But particularly joint integrated fires and persistent intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, or persistent ISR. When all of those things come together with the Navy, the Marine Corps, the Army, our coalition partners, such as the British, the SAS, um, the German uh, Special Air Services and so forth. And I've gotten to meet the Australian Special Air Service guys when I was working the invasion of Iraq. Mm -hmm. I mean, just amazing, amazing facts. Mm -hmm. And we train here in the States like no other place, and it is as realistic as we can possibly make it. <laughs> do we Do we do all scenarios? Well, of course not. None of us would have thought about airliners running into buildings on a Tuesday morning in September of 2001. Mm -hmm. Right. But now you have people that go out and think about those kind of things. None of us could have saw this coronavirus pandemic coming along. <laughs> yeah. That's never going to happen again. Yeah. Right. And think about how that's going to affect the way our military does things. And I talked about this in the previous one. We have folks that are trained to deal with nuclear, biological, chemical mm -hmm. threats. We have ships that can go anywhere and be humanitarian ships as well as combat ships. <clears throat> we are now trying to figure out what's the vaccine for this. We've already find it, kind of found a silver bullet for it, you know, azithromycin mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, Hydrochloroquine. Yeah. Yeah. And, and <laughs> that's a long name. That's a <laughs> lot of letters in a name. Yes, it is. It looks like some typewriter. <clears throat> but look how look how short a time it took us mm -hmm. to find all that out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It really is. The Americans the Americans people here in the US. Did you guys see the other day there's some place in Pennsylvania where the workforce didn't leave the plant for 28 days? Oh, wow. I what? Didn't see that. Dang. Because they were. Yeah. Was um, that a donut factory? <laughs> no. Uh, it's, um, hmm. it's the company's called Brascom or, or Barscom USA or something uh -huh. like that. But they, they make the material that goes in the masks and goes into oh, the medical cloak. Gotcha. And it showed guys 
and gals clocking out for the first time in 28 days. They were bringing food in, and these people said, we are going to stay here to make sure that the people on the front lines, the people in the United States, mm -hmm. have the proper PPE, proper clothing, the masks, everything. And they literally stayed at the plant in Pennsylvania. I'll find the link to it. I'll send it to you. It's amazing to see these people clocking out for the first time in 28 wow. That's incredible. Uh, think about that. Yeah. These people thought it, their job is so important. I will stay here for 28 days. I'll eat pizza and burgers and I'll keep working. And it said that they were sleeping all around mm -hmm. the plant. Mm -hmm. Any place they were working in 12 hour shifts. They interviewed the manager of the place and he talked about how he set up his routines, 12 hour shifts. He knew who had to manage, who knew how to do, you know, all these different things. And these people worked for 28 straight days yeah. to come up with the solutions and the material that we needed to have in our masks and in our and our uh, medical people's clothes yeah. and so forth. Yeah. Oh, it's, yeah. and, and how many hundreds of stories are there? Yeah, right. There? American yeah. ingenuity. Mm -hmm. That's right. Exactly. I mean, we do come together exactly. as a nation. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, exactly. and, and thank God, you know, the, the numbers – you know, the, the reality of all this is showing that even as lethal as this virus has been, it is turning out to not be as lethal compared to how many people yes. are infected. So thank God. But I mean, it, it makes sense that you, you know, what's the what's the term I'm looking for? You know, um, air on the side of costume. Yeah, well, that, that that's a good way to put it, Ryan. And you know, because when something not to new, create a panic. Yeah, I know. That's that, yeah. that was well. We can blame the media on that one. Yeah, true. <laughs> but you you plan for the worst. Case. Yeah, there you go. Right, there and you go. You're surprised when it doesn't. Exactly. Happen. You're happy and surprised. It Great happen. way to put it. And, and in this case, we plan for the worst case. Now, a, a lot of people would say. I don't think we needed to shut down our economy. I think we could have dealt with this. So right. forth. I am not a doctor. I don't know. Yeah. I have my own opinions on yeah. this. Okay. But we went and we did things and did them early to where we could head some of this mm -hmm. off. I saw a statistic the other day that 54% of the deaths are in the state of New York. Why is that? Yeah. That's, that's the kind of thing we have to go back and research. Mm -hmm. Why did a majority of the fatalities happen in particular locations? What caused right. that? What could we have done that could have prevented mm -hmm. that? Whatever it might be. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> and that's the analysis you need to do. Yeah. One of the things that we did as pilots after every flight, is we had a really in-depth debrief. And I've worked with organizations that don't do that. When things went wrong, it's like, okay, well, let's go on to the next. No, wait a minute. Let's sit down and figure out why did this happen the way it did? What are the whys? 
And what do we need to change to become more effective, more efficient, leaner, faster, stronger, all those different things. And a lot of times it's because we're embarrassed by what we might learn about ourselves. Don't be embarrassed by that stuff. This is how you learn. Mm -hmm. We have a great opportunity to learn how to fight this. If in fact, because I was, well, are you hearing now? Well, this may be back in the fall. Okay, if it's back in the fall, let's have a really, really good murder board debrief right now to figure out what are our lessons learned so that we can write all this down. So if it does happen again, we know exactly what to do and how to do it. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. When we see certain indications and signs, then we can immediately start turning things on in phases. You know, phase one, phase two, phase three, phase four being the worst. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I hope that people are are stepping back, putting their egos and their pride aside, going, what could I have done better? What could my company have done better? What could we as a nation have done better? What did we learn from this? <clears throat> and more importantly, how can I help the others around me that weren't so fortunate in this mm -hmm. so that we can keep them from losing more family members? Because you'll notice the age range and the uh, hospice homes and stuff like that were really hard hit mm -hmm. right? in some of these cases. Yeah. <clears throat> Why was that? How could we have prevented that? Could we have prevented people from coming to see their families? Maybe so. I don't know. But we need to step back and take a really good national debrief and see what worked, what didn't, and what processes can we put in place so that if this happens again, we know exactly what to do. We don't have to be running, bumping into each other in the hallway again. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> forward yeah man i can't i can't express how these debriefings and learning your lessons so they become lessons learned not lessons observed as we used to say mm -hmm. lessons learned and saying to ourselves okay what did i learn from this even in our daily lives we've all failed at something i got fired from that weapon school i was second in command what did i learn from this Mm -hmm. I had to go back and say, what did I learn from this? Well, one thing I learned was <clears throat> your plan may not be God's plan. Okay. <laughs> I got fired in April of 2001. Everything changed September morning, 2011. Mm -hmm. yep. And now I'm trained to go and set up air refueling operations on a global scale. Yeah. I thought I thought my career in the Air Force was over with, and I talked about that in that chapter. Right. Yeah, but I think all of us need to be willing and sit to sit down and say to ourselves and take a good assessment. You know, where am I? Where is it I want to go? What is it going to take to get there? And I hope our nation sits down. I hope Trump sits everybody down in a room and says, "I want you to write an after action report, and I want recommendations and lessons learned on the back of it." So if this thing happens again then we know what to do because that what makes our military so good at what it does. We sit down and we take a serious look at how, what we did right, what we did wrong and how we need to change things. Let's just make sure we keep Nancy Pelosi off of that uh, group <laughs> or out of that room. <laughs> just saying. 
Yeah. <laughs> she wouldn't want to be there anyway. Brother, don't even kick me on that Say that one don't more time. Don't even start. Don't even start me on that soapbox. I know. Same, same Tony. Right? Let's, let's not kick him on that. But, oh, uh, man. It, it, it's, not, it's not just her. It's not just her. It's a lot of people. Yeah. And no, but she's she's the face of those people, that, unfortunately. Yeah. What's that? Yeah. Oh, sorry, Mark. She's a, she's the there's a number she's of the people, face of all those people. There's a number of Well, yeah, and and that may be very unfortunate for her. I think you guys have <laughs> seen the commercial somebody made about her ice cream drawer, you know. I know. Showing people out of work and she's pulling out the ice cream drawer out of a twenty four thousand dollar refrigerator with that's loaded with thirteen dollar Pints of ice cream. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a rough look. Like, what were her people? <laughs> yeah, what were her people thinking? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I, I, I got to be honest with you guys. The, when I first saw that clip, I thought the GOP is going to get so much mileage out of this; it's not going to be funny. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, but that's, anyway. that's crazy. So, all right, um, I'm off the political soapbox now. Yeah, no more, no more politics. <laughs> yeah, I'll get in a lot of trouble. I know. Same here. We yeah. questions. Same here. Exactly. Sorry, we, I started that yeah, one. Yeah, Tony I'll, did I'll that, one. that one. We we try. To, oh, it's okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We try to stay away. We got it all out of our system. But yeah, <laughs> you're, you're right. You're right. Um. Okay, Mark, I think I've got – I think we've got one other question for you other than if Ryan or Tony does. But, um, well, do you have I'm another – still, Oh, I'm still chomping at the bit for okay. that uh, Operation um, uh, Solia or Solia – Salami. 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 Yeah. But – yeah. You know what? We've been going almost two hours. Maybe we'll have to do this in the next one. Yeah. Okay. That sounds good. We can start talking through some of this okay. stuff. Aaron, so, yeah. Okay. Like I said, we're uh, just shy of two hours now. So Yeah. Yeah. We, as, as we've said, we could uh, go on and on, but yeah, we, we need to, uh, <laughs> we'll do another one. Um, but my, my, my last, question and if you can answer it fairly quickly before we get off i don't know it's up to you um how did you get the call sign sluggo <laughs> <laughs> i pray none of your wives or mothers have to go through what my mom did <laughs> <laughs> i was 10 pounds 14 ounces and 23 and a half inches tall when i was born did you say 10 pounds? 10? 10 pounds, 14 ounces. Oh, wow. 10 pounds, 14 ounces. Okay. 23 ounces tall. And I got to pilot training. You know, you have to bring your birth certificate. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> some airman or nurse, I can't remember who it was, you know, has it in her hand. 10 pounds, 14 ounces, 23 and a half inches tall. What a sluggo. <laughs> You're not going to live that down. <laughs> Ah, cool. That's pretty much. That is. You know, here's a here's a cool character that your listeners will enjoy hearing. Several people I know have had different call signs Mm -hmm. because of something they've done. All right, or something that's happened to them. I'll give you a great for instance. 
during the air campaign in Kosovo, this guy thought they were trucks. He dropped on them. They were actually cows. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so I got invited to come to the renaming. If you've had a call sign in combat, that call sign normally sticks with you through your entire career. Mm -hmm. Unless you do something really worthy of having it changed. This was one of those worthiness <laughs> events in this guy's life. That is funny. And when we came in, they had a big banner above the 510th Fighter Squadron Bar that said, Welcome to the Great Buzzard Bovine Barbecue. <laughs> and we're all like looking at that and we're all laughing and everything like that. And they said, okay, we're having a renaming. It was for a young captain. And they showed the video. And you heard the the banter back and forth on the radio. I'm not sure those are vehicles. No, no, those are vehicles. Look at the way they're moving. They're I'm not sure about that guy. I can't remember his real call sign. We'll just say Peter. Peter, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. He goes, no, no, no. And he got permission to drop. So he drops on him. And... Just before the two 500-pound laser-guided bombs hit the spot he's aiming at, all the cows' heads look up at the bomb. The bomb's coming in. And then, of course, it washes out, all right, and, and, and leaves a big hole in the ground. And oh, no. some cows actually are running away from the hole. Some cows are like hamburger. Yeah. So Well done. Yes, oh, very God. well done. Okay. So that sign was very prophetic because that captain's new call sign was bovine. <laughs> they named him bovine. Perfect. Cooking all those cows in Yugoslavia. That is, that is funny. I, that's really I funny. My call sign uh, uh, in pilot training, I carried it through my career, uh, went to Desert Storm with my call sign sluggo, so you know, the rules are if you have it during combat, unless you do something really stupid, like drop your bombs <laughs> on a bunch of cows, <laughs> your call sign's going to stay with you. So I was known as oh, Sluggo wow. throughout my entire career. That's nice. perfect. Well, I think that's, oh, what's that, Mark? I said, you know, some people still call me that. A lot of my Air Force friends still call me that. My good buddy Rush, he still calls me. He goes, he always calls me Sluggo. Sluggo! That's nice. cool. So, awesome. <laughs> well, I think that's probably a perfect spot to uh, to wrap it stop up. to wrap it up and yeah. and wait for part three. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, Mark, yeah, uh, like I said, I've got some good notes here. You know, when we get, you know, yeah, and about uh, how drones and remotely piloted vehicles have really changed the way we do warfare. There's some really fascinating things that I have found on the Soleimani strike, believe it or not, from an, an Israeli intelligence source. And, and uh, oh, that's cool. I offer another book to your listeners, and that is the book Hunter Killer by Mark McCurley. If you go Hunter Killer in Amazon Books, it'll come up. Not Hunter Killers, which is about wild weasels in Vietnam by Dan Hampton. Mm -hmm. But Hunter Killer, and it really gives you a fascinating look into how the Predator and Reaper 
do their operations. He was the squadron commander of one of the Reaper mm. squadrons down at Creech. And okay. he's wow. the guy that did he's the guy that did Anwar Alalaki. Oh wow. <laughs> and uh I I just got finished reading the book, uh listening to it while I walk and I thought, you know, I told those guys about this. You know, this would be a perfect uh opportunity. So next time we talk, let's talk about uh what we do with drones. How perfect. they fit into like I said, these pillars of military operations, joint integrated fires, persistent intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, cool. and continuous humanitarian operations. Because I'm sure a lot of your listeners don't know that an RQ-1 Global Hawk helped with the rescue efforts during the earthquake in Haiti in 2010. Mm, no. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. All right, Mark. That was supposed to, that was Afghanistan and brought it uh, to Haiti and uh -huh. help map things and help find survivors and all kinds of stuff. Very fascinating story. Very cool. Well, I can't wait to hear more about that. So, what are you doing tomorrow? Give me a week or two here to get ready. I know. I, we're, we're just kidding with you. Um, I, I know. You said that. Because I'm a cheap date. Right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Mark, um, uh, let's get a plug in for your book one more time. Uh, let people know the title of it, where to get it from, and also your uh, wall art uh, project as well, so people can go and okay. look at that. The book is called Tanker Pilot, Lessons from the Cockpit, available at uh, Amazon or Barnes & Noble. And <clears throat> our company called Wall Pilot, you can find us on Facebook at Wall Pilot. We do custom aviation graphics for the office and, and your home. Uh, four foot to eight foot long, and we customize. If you're an F-16 or an F-15 pilot, we can put your name on it, your unit, and even the bomb load that you want on it, which is pretty nice. cool. Nice. That's really cool. And they're printed here in uh, Utah, and we're doing real good with that. Wall Pilot's doing... Uh, really well. We just did a 30 footer for a guy. Oh, so, wow. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. He put it up on the wall in his hangar. So we don't have a website yet. We're working on that. We're doing everything through Facebook, mm -hmm. but uh, we, we do custom artwork. We've got F 16s, F 15s, uh, F 35s. Uh, one of our artists has 12,000 profiles all the way back to world war one. Wow. And he's a terrific terrific artist he's been doing this for 25 years and he does all of our f4s and navy airplanes and and uh they're pretty spectacular they're really detailed too and the printing is phenomenal and it's printed on vinyl you can peel it off and it'll stick right to your wall like fat heads the life-size sports stars mm -hmm. except it's an airplane that's awesome custom, even custom airplane even better yeah <laughs> yeah well, Mark, thank you. I'll tell you one really interesting story. Oh, yes, go ahead. Really, really, really quick, <laughs> really quick, interesting story. We had a guy that ordered six eight-footers, and he told us, he says, well, I was involved in another squadron, uh, and uh, it's classified. And I wrote back to him. I said, oh, you were part of the Red Eagles out of Area 51. He goes, winner. He'd flown <laughs> MiG-21s and MiG-23s with the Red Eagle squadron. And we, oh, in fact, wow. drew – a MiG 21C and a MiG 23 with his name on it from pictures that he sent us, and he's got it up on his wall. That's awesome. Way cool. Yeah. Wow. 
Yeah. All right. Yeah. We're working on a MiG-29 right now. Very cool. All right. Well, Mark, once again, yes, thank you so much for taking time to be with us again. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Mark Asara, once again, his book, Tanker Pilot. Uh, as Mark said, it's available on a lot of different platforms. You can also go to Mark's website, markhasara.com. Jeez, I did it again. Um, and uh, anyway. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, links to a lot of everything else that, that Mark is about. Um, get the book and read it. It is fascinating. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yes. I, I went through it in like two days. So uh, anyway, uh, that wraps up another edition of the Ram Check podcast. Aaron, uh, let us know real quick where we can find you on social media. Yeah, you can find my personal Instagram at Aaron Rumfollow. And then, of course, at Ram Check Global is where I have all the av geekery stuff. So uh, photos, um, a ramp swag. And, and speaking of that, Mark, your shirt should arrive soon. <laughs> he got he already hey, got the stickers, the stickers we sent him. <laughs> the stickers were incredible. I, <laughs> I love the stickers. I, I just got to figure out well, you know, where are places I could put something that big. I think I'm just going to put one on the back of my car. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> it was great work. Beautiful. Folks, the, the stickers that they made for me says nobody kicks ass without tanker gas has a <laughs> tanker on it. It looks fabulous. Awesome. Thank fabulous. you. Thank you. <laughs> All right, great. Ryan, what about you? Uh, you can follow me at Rome. Follow me. And you, Tony. <laughs> ah, and you can follow me <laughs> at uh, T Rum Follow. As usual, uh, don't forget, everybody, uh, the Ram Check podcast is available on all kinds of platforms now. Uh, Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and uh, we just launched on Pandora. So if you like to uh, listen to your music on Pandora, you want to get your podcast in the same place, you can do that as well. Go to Pandora and just search for the Ramp Check Podcast. Also, speaking of that Ramp Swag that Mark was talking about, our Ramp Swag store is available through rampcheckglobal.com. Uh, buy yourself some Ramp Swag. Uh, also, check out our aerospace and aviation news website, Ramp Check Report, which is also available through rampcheckglobal.com. And uh, I think that is about it for the three of us. Yeah. Brian, thanks for joining. Good day.